Ice water in your veins is a fact. Underneath that rough exterior lies a heart of pure, pure stone. 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 that's that's me huh? you're a true you're a true bedroom beethoven it, you know it was filled with we transfers and emailing people and, a, and a, a lot of the music process was insular but my thing was is like when i initially approached you yeah sure you might be j-zone you're still j-zone but you're j-zone the drummer of the do rights now and i want to have a a conversation with you as such because in terms of press it's important that we shine light on you and it's not just another conversation about how you transition out of hip-hop you know we've we've covered those bases yeah yeah i mean i'm, I'm always open to uh talk about whatever man it's just i always try to keep stuff in the present i'm from i'm from the miles davis way of thinking of 
moving forward, no matter how uncomfortable and how unsafe. I wanted to know if there was a connection to clout music and Cadillacs, because within the first 90 seconds of Pimps Don't Pay Taxes, there's two references to rolling around in Cadillacs. He's romantic. He's got real class, too. I don't see you cruising around in no Cadillac. You will, brother. You will. Ain't full of shit. Is that like a, was that a sign of prestige growing up? The Cadillac is the one constant between my hip-hop days and my days now, you know, with the do-rights. It goes back to just childhood. Like, my grandfather, when he retired, he got a 1979 Coupe de Ville, a, uh, a gold Cadillac. And growing up, that was just the, the family Cadillac. Like when the, <laughs> yeah. We would just go to the mall. Like, Green Acres Mall is three miles away. We would just drive there. We would drive to Jamaica Avenue or anywhere like we're just around queens and nassau southern queens and nassau we would drive and the cadillac it, it had that corinthian leather like just that fake leather and it used to stink and i used to get real nauseous in the car and we had like he had an a-track player he only had two a-tracks of a barry white and a lou rawls greatest hits and it was one of those two A-tracks, and you'd be sliding around on the back seat because they were like couches. They weren't like seats like in a normal Toyota or something. They were like Corinthian leather couch bench seats. And between sliding around and the smell of the upholstery and just the size of the vehicle, I always got sick. And those two A-tracks were always playing, and he always kept a mayonnaise jar in the back seat. If I had to pee, I would pee in the mayonnaise jar. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Ouch. On the back of the seat. Yeah. So growing up, you know, the Cadillac and just, you know, being here around my grandparents' place, like that was just the funk to me. And it was always a symbol of status and prestige, you know, growing up. And uh, they always said Cadillacs were for pimps and pensioners. So people who would retire and stuff would, would get them. And, you know, just the fact that they were like land yachts, they were so long, like to look at them in, in current context, the Cadillac looks almost cartoonish because of its size and because of the way it was built. But it just, it always was part of, it was always a sign of success. So it was always like, one day I'm going to get a Cadillac. Whether you wanted one or not, it was just, you know, that was just something you, you said and thought. I mean, when you were young, it was ingrained. Like, ooh, grandpa, your grandparents finally got the Cadillac. They finally made it. You know, so yeah. True or false, though? Corinthian leather, I hear, was supposedly upscale car upholstery, but I heard it was just marketing and it was bullshit. There was no difference between regular leather and Corinthian leather. It was bullshit. (laughs) Corinthian leather was made in New Jersey. It was made in Newark in a factory. It wasn't. (laughs) It wasn't like some foreign exotic thing. It was just you know Ricardo Montalban Corinthian leather, the finest Corinthian leather. And it was made in like, like Newark, like like in, on the outskirts of Newark, they had a factory where they made this stuff. And I don't even think I think Corinthian leathers were strictly for Chryslers. Um, I think you're right. Yeah. And you know they were. It was like patented by Chrysler. I just it was just a term you used for any kind of leather upholstery in Cadillacs or Lincoln Continentals or or any of those long land yachts that they used to have. That kind of leather, we just always called it that because Corinthian leather was, it's kind of like Xerox, like Xerox is a brand, but anybody making a copy of anything became, I'm going to make a Xerox. I'm going to blow my nose with a Kleenex. 
Yeah, exactly. I, I guess moving past that, now that I got that myth confirmed, uh, I, we we can jump back into music, man. I I, I wanted to know, like, because you grew up in the right place. I mean, I mean, you're you're in the hotbed of music. You found the right Sears catalog. You did the right internship. You went to college for audio engineering. On paper, it seems very calculated. You make a good point about New York, growing up in New York and having an advantage. Well, there's an advantage and a disadvantage. You go into the Yellow Pages, and if you wanted to intern in a recording studio, you had a choice of about 50 of them. (laughs) And if you wanted to intern in a record label, you had a choice of a gang of them. So... Everything was here. You had resources and you had opportunity because if you, because back then it was like I said, there was no internet. Not many kids in a high school had equipment. Like one or two guys had DJ equipment. Maybe one guy or none had beat making equipment. Like you, you know, you had some musicians, but not a lot of people had equipment and not a lot of people were interning. So it was just less people banging down the door. And you could kind of come in and work your way up. It was easier being in New York. Like, you had more opportunity. Like, even if you went across the bridge to Jersey, like, you know, I remember a a famous session drummer named Yogi Horton talking about when he first started, kids would line up after school at All Platinum Studios. And All Platinum was like a soul label that eventually launched, you know, Sugar Hill came out of that. And, like, the session players would just, it was like a cattle call for, for local musicians, and everybody would try to stab each other in the back to get gigs because that, that was the label. But in New York, you had a, tons of studios, tons of small labels, different ways to, to get your foot in, and it was advantageous to me being young and looking for a way in. But then where it became a disadvantage is when you eventually try to get established everybody's doing what you're doing. You're not special. So you had a lot of acts. If you came from like a city, like, you know, where you're at situated, nobody is saying, Oh, those dudes from Stanford or Bridgeport or new Haven. Yeah. I saw that show up there. It was live. It must, it must've been hard around like maybe college times or people to find like-minded people like yourself while you're, you know, studying audio engineering or trying to find a band. Definitely. Well, even in New York, I had trouble with that because my whole story was in the beginning, I started as a funk bass player when I was in grade school. That's how I got this vast knowledge of funk and jazz and all that other kind of stuff. And I was a bass player and I couldn't find a band like because I and also because I'm an only child and I was like kind of socially isolated. So I used to just listen to my parents records like they were new. Like, kids my age were into Run DMC. I had no idea about any of that stuff. Yeah. I, I would come home from school and go into my parents' records and put them on. These records are 10, 15, 20 years old at this point, but I don't know nothing. To me, it's, okay, this is the music I'm doing. And I learned how to play bass by playing along to these funk albums that we had in the house. And that was my musical education. And when I go to school, hey, I found this brass construction record yesterday. It's great. And people are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then when people would come over and I show them the records, they're like, hey, these guys are wearing big afros and bell bottoms. This is like, yeah. But you know what? I'm ashamed to say this, but the curiosity that you had for like Mark Adams is the same curiosity I had for like Fieldy from Corn. I just, I never seen anyone play bass the way he had. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so it's like, I'm my hero growing up with Mark Adams or Robert Poobell, you know, or, or guys like that who played with the punk bands. 
and a redeemed white person of fire. Like, when I was a child, I was aspiring to be them, but it was like my peers, that was music of their parents, and my peers just weren't hip to that at all. So it was almost like it, there, there was no outlet for me to do that kind of music. And I got into hip-hop almost because I had no other... It was the easiest thing for me to do. I didn't go to an arts high school. I didn't live in a place where there was a lot of musicians. So I would join the school orchestra, but I didn't like playing that. I mean, that had nothing to do with where I wanted to go. And I just said, it was like, well, it was more of a probability thing. Like, what's the likelihood I'm going to find seven other guys that are into this old music and we're going to get out here and actually play? And I was just like... The odds are much better. I have an advantage because I, I'm 14, 15, 16 years old, and I know these old records that kids my age don't know. Producers knew them, the P-Rocks, the Premiers, the Marley Marls. They knew what this was, and they were a few years older than me, but nobody as young as me in, in my school like knew this stuff. And I was like, if I start making beats, then I have an advantage. 30 years later, I'm back. I'm more like I was, at, I'm 42 years old and I have more in common with my 11-year-old self than I do with my <laughs> yeah. 7-year-old self or my 34-year-old self. You know what I mean? Like, it's like I've, I've kind of gone all the way back to the beginning and it's like I took this huge circular detour with a hip-hop career and it's just kind of funny when I go back and look at it now, like that it took all that to get to where I always dreamed of being. Yeah. Well, your musical ear aside, it's funny because you often hear people praise bassists who just do their job and hold down the groove. But then like, you know, Mark Adams and Fieldy, they sometimes in that circle, they get hate because even though they do that, they do it in such a unique way. Musical ear aside, was was that like a learning experience in professionalism? Like when you were, you know, because I wonder if we still need it, you know, professionalism. I, I know a television producer editor who used to work at MTV and he told me that if they had like without giving away specific instances, he said, if Snoop Dogg was to be on set at 11 a.m., you're lucky if he showed up at 6 p.m. So you have entire crews sitting around waiting for stone rappers to make their mark. And if you went up to him like Calvin, Mr. Dog, sir, we would all really appreciate it if you could try to be on time he would ignore you and keep moving or or hell you know what i'll use an example just a few days ago when little wayne went on stage and realized that most of the people in the crowd were rock and roll fans blink 182 fans and although i'm sure they were excited to see wayne they probably didn't know his songs little wayne wasn't feeling it he picked up the mic said it wasn't his swag and he left and these these larger than life figures in music obviously don't have professionalism but having a lack of it doesn't seem to make your stock go down nowadays. When you're when you're in hip hop, you the, the more unprofessional you are, the more your mystique goes up. Because like what again, without saying names, there's a lot of artists who don't show up to their shows. They're notoriously late. They cuss out the audience and leave, and all it does is make them a bigger rock star. But if you're a musician, like not the front. Man, not the singer, not the not the one in the spotlight. If you are an instrumentalist and working in a band, professionalism is what gets you gigs over people with more talent. And I was always a punctual guy, and I always got screwed in, in, in hip-hop. There were times where I did hip-hop shows where I was, like, not headlining, but maybe right before the headliner. There might be four or five acts on the bill. And because I did sound check and I was there... I had to go on an hour before I was supposed to because the people who were going to warm up for me, they were late, <laughs> you know? So I suffered because of my punctuality in the hip hop days. And I have a lot of instances, some of which I talk in my book where I got stood up and, 
people wasting my time and it just seems to to, to be part of it just it always felt like in hip-hop that people who a lot of people were there just because they knew they could never survive in like a nine to five or a city job and they could kind of just get a pass for being a fuck off you know and just doing whatever i found that a lot but as a musician it's the opposite. You know, when I started trying to auditioning for bands and, and playing with the bands, even that I'm in now, in the very beginning, I was at a disadvantage because I'm in a band with people who've been playing their instrument for X amount of years, 10, 15 years. I had only been drumming for a couple of years. And I knew that chops wise and, you know, technical wise, I was probably the weakest link. So I had to use my musical knowledge and my, you know, my professionalism to compensate and okay, how can I just not, it's almost like when, when, you know, when, when you're a kid and you want to go out and you really want to go to this party and you know, you're not doing that well in school, you act extra polite around the house. Like you help your mom, Hey mom, I'll do the dishes. Like you try to, you try to, you know, you know, you're on shaky footing or on shaky ground. So you, you try to get on a good side. Like, so my introduction to, to be, you know, playing an instrument in the band was always, you know, I know that I don't have the chops. I know that the last drummer they had was probably more technically advanced. So I'm going to keep the best time I can keep, make everybody comfortable, stay in the back, try not to be noticed, show up on time. If you need help carrying equipment, I'll carry the equipment. I was, I was in a new world because I knew that whatever stock I had as Jay's own didn't matter when I was playing in a band. It's not like, you're a rap star for 30 years, then you start taking DJ gigs and your first gig is packed. People are there to see you because you're you, not because you're a great DJ. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're celebrity DJs. It's all the time. It's, it's kind of screwed it up for DJs that are really good. When you're playing as a, you know, an instrument in a band, it doesn't matter what you accomplish. You got to drive the band, especially as a drummer or a bass player. Like, you got to hold it down. And while I was going through that, I was like, okay, I may not have extra chops and stuff, but I'm going to be just a supporting member and be the best supporting member I could be and be a professional. Now the professionalism I always had is, is going to actually come in handy as opposed as being a hindrance when I was a hip hop artist. So it was just funny how like I always had that skill and that ability to just be a team player and just do my part. And in hip hop, it's kind of like anti that. You got to be an alpha dog. You got to want the spotlight. You got to be kind of a screw up. And that kind of attracts people to you. So I had to totally acknowledge the, the 180 when it comes to being in a band. Because you'll just get replaced with another drummer, another guitarist. Dime a dozen. <laughs> you know, so if you're getting picked, you got to really be a team player. So enter, enter Pablo Martin. You got to depend on someone now. Do rights wouldn't be as successful as it is if he didn't share the same work ethic, work ethic as you, I imagine. Right. You know, he played guitar in Tom Tom Club. somewhere around then. But as a new member, you know, you're playing in front of these audiences with people who don't know who you are, you know, and, and you could try to be a show-off. 
he just held it down and he, he knows all about groove and keeping things simple and funky and locked in so he has that discipline as well and working with him has been great we, we we talk every day about okay what do we have to finish what's coming up how should we spin this and we're in another we're in two different bands together we're in a rock band and we're in a do right so between the two bands we have to communicate every day and he's older than me so he's also a lot of the older musicians who've been around like after a while they understand that they you know they, they get more discipline as they get older, unless you're like a superstar. Like if you've always been a front man, then you have carte blanche to kind of run around and be a nut job. Just because something works for someone else, you can't do it. Prime example, Beyonce puts out an album on Christmas or does a video for every single song. And then everybody, some you know, uh, uh, a SoundCloud rapper with three followers, I'm going to do a video for every song. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm going to. I'm going to release an album on Christmas. <laughs> You're not Beyonce. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like a lot of artists, you know, they might have looked at what, what worked for Kanye, like just constant controversy, and then it won't work for you. Like, so they start making incendiary tweets and dissing people. Like, that works for 50 Cent. That yeah. might not work for you. So you have to find out what works for you. And, and I had to trial and error to find out what works for me. Then I flash back to that scene in Collateral with Tom Cruise. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but they're in this jazz club. And uh, one of his victims tells the story of Miles Davis, where he was like, you don't, you don't come up and talk to Miles Davis. One time a couple came up to shake his hand and Miles said, get your jive motherfucking ass out of my face and take your silly bitch with you. But instead of people calling him an asshole, he said, that's just the way he was. He was absorbed in his musical headspace. He was fierce. And I know the story of Joe Dukes shouting obscenities to Benson on stage, or he would get jealous if a girl chose another band member over him. Because that's, he's my favorite drummer. And you so you did your Joe Dukes is my favorite drummer. But he so, pulled a switchblade out on a 19-year-old. You know what I mean? It, it, over, over groupies. Like, <laughs> like, if he had the right amount of alcohol in him, they were, for lack of a better term, they were motherfuckers. Do you have to be a tough customer to be magnificent back then to get that spit and polish you were talking about? We can talk about it from a hip-hop standpoint. Like, people do shows now rapping over their own vocal tracks. And... I'll watch video of that and the crowd's just kind of cheering along. And I was like, man, if we'd have done that, we would have got shot or like beat up or robbed or something. Like there was just like an element of fear almost that kept us from scared to, I mean, I talk, there's a chapter in my book where I talked about DJing my first party and I sucked and they bum rushed my equipment. They were jumping on it. it. It was like, I totally got pumped because I went up there on practice and that put a fear in me of like, don't get up there until at least you're ready to like really give it your all. And, you know, there's really no consequence at this point, you know, for that. But those guys, you're talking about the fifties and sixties, like someone like Joe Dukes. I mean, those guys came out of the, the bebop era and the post bop era. So, you know, you're up there, you know, you're talking about like, Max Roach going after Ornette Coleman at the five spot because the, because that avant-garde stuff, people like just some people just didn't like it. You know, Charlie Mingus punching one of his bandmates in the mouth so he couldn't play his horn anymore. Like these guys just like they were so serious about the music. Like they didn't they probably didn't come from a lot of money. So it was like, yo, it's music or die. 
now it's kind of like social media driven and you get a lot of chances, you know, but back then it was like you, you got one shot at the Mike Douglas show or the Tonight Show. And if you blew it, you know, that might not, you couldn't get on Instagram the next day and woodshed your ass off and get a thousand likes. You know, it was like you had one shot. You know, competition was fear, and we didn't have lanes back then. Now we have lanes. So, like, if something doesn't work out, you could find a lane doing a million different things. There's just ways. It's not the end of the world. But at that point, it's like, look, I'm a jazz drummer or bust. It's like, it's either this or nothing. You know, now it's like, well, I could go design websites. I could be a social media tastemaker, quote unquote, like all these abstract ass jobs. Oh, I'm a creative. I don't even know what that means. You know, like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like sitting there with a latte on a MacBook, like, you know, you're going to South by Southwest talking about who's relevant. I mean, come on. I mean, like this, you didn't have the jack of all trades like you do now. And you didn't have multitasking. You had people who did one thing and one thing only. And if you blew it, that was it. So I remember reading about Dukes and Benson, you know, because, uh, you know, I guess because if you weren't an avid reader, you know, music reader, Joe Dukes didn't like that. And he was just a mercurial guy. And you could tell by the way he played drums that he was, you know, he was a serious dude. And Miles, I read Miles' book. I'm reading it now again for like the fourth time in the past year. I read it like every couple of months, cover to cover, just because it's hysterical and it's like so powerful. And it's just, he just doesn't care, man. And, you know, the whole Steve Miller part of the book. I mean, it's just, it's just, Miles was just cold motherfucker, man. (laughs) And you kind of read it and, you know, I don't have any of that in my personality. I'm just not that cold, but it gives you an idea of how serious you have to be to do this. And regardless of whether or not the current times, you, you don't have to really be that way in the current times, but it's like you look at what people had to do. You listen to how much people rehearsed, how much people practiced, how many shows people did. I, you know, talking to Greg Webster, the original drummer for the Ohio Players from my column, he said, man, we used to rehearse seven, eight hours every day just because that was what we did. And he's like, nowadays, guys don't want to rehearse unless they're getting paid. And it's true. Like, everybody's rehearsal. Oh, I don't want to rehearse. It's not a knock on the guys. Like, you got to make a living. But it's like, back then, it was just kind of like music or bust. And they just went at, went at it with an intensity that just, it's almost not even necessary today. But you envy that, and you can't help but wonder if you channel that in a current space Will it give you an advantage? If you talk to the bandmates, they would agree that, you know, the methods were barbaric, but for the most part, it was about making them a better musician so they'd be a better band. Yeah, because we're all in this together. You might be the drummer that's responsible for time, but if the rhythm guitarist or the bass player is having an issue, that affects you because everybody's looking at you for the time, but then you interlock with the bass player and the rhythm guitarist and the percussionist, and then you accent off the horns or whatever the keyboard player is doing. So like everybody's responsible for time, but you're the final line of defense. The term paying dues sounds almost as antiquated as selling out, right? Like you call somebody a sellout in 2019, they wouldn't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Or like, oh, you sell out like a millennial would be like, what's that? They'll go, yeah. they'll start fooling that shit. Like trying to, you know, and paying dues. Like people don't really know what that is because it's almost not necessary. If you go viral and you get a lane, quote unquote, it doesn't really matter. But regardless of the way things are now, I was kind of, I grew up watching guys in that era have to go through that rigor to get as good as they were. 
and it stays with me. It stays with me regardless. So I'm one of the guys who loves rehearsal. You know, so you have to channel your inner animal from the Muppets and just boom, 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 you know, just simplify it. You know, they like, but this is only stuff that can be learned by messing up, like getting on the spot, making mistakes, playing every night, you know, and, and that's why that's invaluable experience. So I never, as rough as touring may be for some of my age, I get out there and soak up every minute of it because it's valuable. Like all every night playing on the road, I, I, I did a few tours this year and every night, it's rough physically and sometimes the money's up and down, but man, it's like you come back a better musician and you sleep well knowing that you did. You know, 35 years old, learning drums from like the instructor of the movie Whiplash. You can't use those methods nowadays with this generation to pull out a good performance or they're not going to rehearse if they don't get paid, you know? That's a different no, time. It's not. And, and second, third, fourth, and fifth place all get trophies. Like, that's just the era we're in. Like, you just don't want to alienate anyone, you know, because... We're ultra conscious of mental health and, you know, the, the thought of failure or losing, it, it's a detriment to mental health. So people are trying to not try to like tiptoe around those situations. But ultimately, you're going to have to compete in life. That's just a sad, that's just an unavoidable fact. Like if, you, if you go for a job, there's other people applying for that job go out and audition for a band there's other drummers auditioning if you're interested in talking to a girl there's other guys talking to her <laughs> but the key is not to be afraid of that but to embrace it and if you don't make it then then to keep on pushing it's not whether you fail or not it's just a fear of failure and a total avoidance of it that makes people makes those conditions that musicians were groomed under back in the day it would be impossible to do today because people just want to avoid it. You know, like nobody wants to fall on their face. And in the era of social media, you don't want it to be viral and all this other stuff. You don't want to be embarrassed publicly. But it's just back in the days, I guess, because it, it wasn't, if, if you went on a bandstand and screwed up and got fired in a gig, the only people who were there to tell the story were the people who were there. <laughs> you know, that happens to you now. Somebody's got a phone out. Yeah. So it, like things sting a little bit deeper and people are a little bit more sensitive about it. You just have to stay in the headspace of the ultimate goal is to be the best musician you can be. You'll have good days and bad days, but you know, warts and all, you, you got to put it out. You got to get out there sometime. You know, you can't just stay in your basement and give us the unfiltered version. Like you got to get out there and make some mistakes. You know, you got to, you got to get your ass busted a couple of times and that's, and we all went through, we all go through it. You know, it's just that now we try to curate the experience. And then when someone watches that and then tries to do it themselves, they're like, yo, hey, how come I'm striking out? Hey, how come I'm failing? How come I'm this and that? You know, and, and it's like we, we everything is so heavily curated that we're not seeing the bumps in the road. You know, so people kind of have this route that it's easy. And then, oh, I can get up and rap over my vocal. I, I'm a, I was known as a rapper for 30 years, but it's dried up. I could just do, start DJing tomorrow, just load up my Serato and go. <laughs> you know, because that, that, that's the climate we're in. But, but, you know, I that's just not the way it works. Nobody wants to be playing in a club for 10 people. But if I started playing drums at 17, that's what I'd be doing. So for me to be doing that at 36, 37, 38, playing in the 
Otto's shrunken head in the in the East Village for nine people, you know, I was just happy to be up there. Like, yo, this is crazy. I had a hip hop career. Now I'm playing some freaking drums on a Wednesday afternoon and Otto's shrunken head and public access TV and nobody's here. Well, somebody would be like, oh man, that sucks. I'd be like, nah, this is great. <laughs> now when I fuck up, only people who saw it were those nine people and the people watching public access TV that afternoon. Yeah. So so it's kind of like you have to change your perspective on it, you know, and, and keep in mind what made the greats great and try your best to channel that, even though the current circumstances for musicians are entirely different than they were for them. Yeah, I always liked the, the Art Blakey approach. His, his reputation was nice. He wasn't, as far as I know, a jackass, but his thing was, was like, get to the point when you play. Get to the point, and when you start repeating, it's time to finish your story. But he always said... Get a band where you have somebody who can write. And the main thing that I took away from that was like, just just get a band. He encouraged the people he played with to always leave the jazz messengers, believing you got to get your own band. Don't be clumping together and holding the horn to this one band that you're in because... Uh, and I'll use the word snipers that he used. You know, they're, they're out there. And if we all stay in one group, like the stagecoach goes through the gully, they're going to ambush you at the pass and they're going to get you all at the same time. But if you have a lot of band leaders spread out all over, it's hard to target you. And I, you know, I wasn't sure if he was referencing like vultures in the industry or your talents become stagnant, but I always liked that he encouraged people to move around. Like if you're going to be a cast member on SNL, don't be Keenan Thompson, do a few years and move on. Yeah. That, that, and that's, Everybody, a lot, so many great people passed through the jazz messengers. And even with Miles, people were in and out of bands, out of his band over the years. And they would come and go, James Brown too. You know, like that's just how it is. You, you, you grow as much as you can as a musician. You get what you can from the experience and you move forward. Unless it's your band, you know, but you look at a band, like I know some of the guys in, in Cool in the Gang, you know, four of the original members are still there. Everybody else is new. You know, but because some guys passed on, but then over the years, guys just come and go. And, you know, that's just part of it. And as a musician, you, you can't really, it's not like being an artist. Like when you're, when you're the artist, that's it. But when you're a musician, you know, you, you kind of move in and out of situations and get what you can and expand, you know, and you can wind up doing something totally outside. Like I'm in a rock band. I never thought I'd ever be playing any rock because I just don't, I'm not a rock drummer. But I learned about it because I walked into a situation where they needed a drummer and I was reliable and I showed up on time and I was eager to, to play and they, they were patient with me. You know, now we play all the time. And it's like, you, you know, you, you move through situations and you learn, but you, you have to keep growing. Like you can't, I'm, I'm not a fan of TBT nostalgia shit. I mean, that shit is cool, you know, to give credit pass, but I'm, I'm more about like constantly moving forward. Let them TBT you when you're dead. Then they got 40 years of music and it's a journey of peaks and valleys and they can look through and say, wow, he did this, he did that, he did the other, you know, but you, you, he, he's right. Like you don't want to get stuck. You know, a lot of jazz guys started playing R&B just to make money. You know, like all the Motown guys were big band jazz musicians, jazz club guys. And then they would cut R&B records to make money during the day and play jazz, and you know, for, for the dancers at night, you know, like playing, you know, for like belly dancers and shit like that, you know, and they would they would do that kind of shit. 
you know, so it's like the more experience you have that, you know, you just become a more well-rounded musician and that, you know, that goes for anybody, you know, on a journey with their instrument. You know, you, you just have to like be open to different situations and not, not stay stagnant and not stay stuck. You know, that's, that's the worst thing you can do. Well, a person in your position, like let's say you go to a jazz club and you see the Steve Jordan's band, for instance, or you're talking to Questlove. Can you can you be a fan? Because I, I interviewed Von P from Tanya Morgan a few episodes ago, and he told me like he saw Sky Zoo and he was a fan, and he asked for his autograph, and he was like, "Nah, man, you're Von P." And he was like, "Well, so what? I can't be a fan." Like you're in the you're in a community of musicians. Do you ever feel like that now that you've opened yourself up to actually going to other shows. Cause I know when you were in hip hop, you didn't do that. And now you're showing love to other musicians and you're building out your network. Can you sit back in a club and just be a fan? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I went to see, you said Steve Jordan. I went to see Steve Jordan and I had met both Ronald Bell and Steve Jordan at a lecture earlier last year, like in January. And then they played in August by Lincoln center. And I went and saw him with Pablo taking notes for the do-rights, and they just kicked ass. And then afterwards, you know, like, I know some of Ronald's, you know, his wife, Tia, manages the group. And I texted her. I'm like, hey, can I just come back and say what's up? She said, yeah, come back. And I go up there, and I start talking to Steve, and, you know, we're hanging out, and, you know, we all went to dinner and shit. You know, and it was, like, surreal. I'm pinching myself. You know what I'm saying? But it's like, I'm a musician, but I'm not so cool that these guys didn't change my life and inspire me with, with their music, you know? So it's like, it's kind of hard to not come off like a geek, you know, cause even the drunk, the, like George Brown from cool in the gang, that was the first interview I did for my Red Bull column. And, you know, we did an interview for two hours and I was like, I had a plan. I was like, I don't want to come off like, like a super fan, but I want to show him that I know his shit first. And what I, started asking him questions that he probably had never heard before and talking about people he knew from his past that he didn't know anybody knew about just from all research. He was like, how do you know that? And I'm like, yo man, I just been researching this stuff for 30 years. And now I finally get to talk to you about it. And I read things in different places and once here and once there and just archived it. And he was like, wow, the research you're doing is crazy. And after the interview, I go in my backpack and I brought him with me. I brought out all the albums and I had a Sharpie and I was like, can you sign me? And he was like, oh, <laughs> that's dope. and the Sharpies had an ink and I'm like, God damn it. Like we, he was in his hotel and I was like, shit. And he's like, don't worry, just go get another Sharpie. I'll be here. And I'm thinking like, yo, this is dream. He ain't got no time to wait for me to run and get a Sharpie. I ran out the elevator. I did a Carl Lewis Usain Bolt to like the nearest CVS and bought a 20 pack of Sharpies because I couldn't find an individual. I was like, give me whatever Sharpie. I paid like $15. But this big pack of Sharpies came back and I gave him, and he waited for me and he signed everything. You know, and it was like at, at the end, the geeked out fanboy came out, but I went in there to be professional. That's, That's my approach. approach. You know, like I, uh, I'm not going to book this interview and be like, so hip hop, uh, who's your favorite music producer? Hi, J-Zone. My name is Lisa Mitchell from Fuck Off Magazine, and I'd like to do this interview with you. 
Oh, really? You've released two albums for critical acclaim and acquired a fan base, but a lot of people still never heard of you. Tell us who J-Zone is. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I do my research. I, I try to make sure you're having a, a, a catered experience, and uh, finding a way to record this podcast is your 20-pack Sharpie. I just paid $60 to upgrade a trial to a full pack just to record this interview, and I'm fine with that because that's what it takes when you do stuff like this. That's what it takes. You know, I went out and had a meeting with Ronald Bell about some food and the gang stuff. They're working on some some things, some social media stuff and the management team. You know, we had a meeting out in Jersey and I took the Jersey Transit just to talk to them. And it was like I'm there and, and they're barbecuing and we're, we're sitting there eating chicken wings and corn on the cob. And I'm like, is this real? Like, is this real? Like, I'm hearing about how like funky stuff was done in one take. And I'm sitting here talking, and I'm like, "Is this freaking real?" <laughs> and like, I'm, and you know, I'm out there, like, just in the middle of Jersey on the train. Like, I don't know how I'm getting home. There's no reception on my phone. I don't care. And it was like, but my, I had a job to do. I was called out there to discuss ideas for a social media thing. And for the first hour, that's all I did, just like spit and polish. And then after that, it's like, "Hey, you want something to eat?" And then when we sat down to eat. Then I say, okay, why is pneumonia in 4-4 and parts and 5-4 and other parts? <laughs> you know, like talking about the time signature. You know, like then you start coming out with that. But when you've already established, like, look, I'm here to help you or I'm here to see you or I am a fan. I have a level of respect for you. You don't have to know me or what I do. I'm here to serve you because you've achieved something that I haven't. And I acknowledge that. And I'm here to help you. You know, I've interviewed guys over the phone for my Red Bull column, and, and we actually really clicked, and we would stop, tape would stop rolling. We'd still be talking about drums, and I'd say, hey, man, you got a P.O. box? I want to send you my group of do-rights. I'll send Steve Arrington, I send him everything. Gregorico from Sly and the Family Stone, I sent him a do-right CD. You know, like, I, but after I do the job. because yeah. <laughs> right. So let me do my job as a journalist. And when that's all said and done, you talk music, the conversation gets deeper, you get a little bit looser, and then it's like, yeah, you know, I have a band, and we do this. Oh, really? That's cool. Here's a copy. End of story. And right. there's certain there's people you don't go up to, like a, like, like a Miles Davis, like especially back then, you just, you know, Miles was somebody who was too cool. Like, you just, you couldn't approach him. You know, he was being, because he didn't care if you liked his music or not. So you kind of have to keep that in mind. He didn't like it when people liked his music. You know, he would like, all oh, the critics like this, but they don't like that. Like, Miles was just that kind of guy, a once-in-a-lifetime guy. These are things that you, that you have to keep in mind, you know, and these, the, the different personalities of the artists. But, yes, it, it all goes back to just discipline and respect, you know, for, for the craft and for the people who've excelled in their craft that you're around. you got to know when to shut up and listen and when to say, okay, Here's what I do, or here's what you know. Here's what your music has done for me. You, you do that after you let them do what they got to do. Well, I'm hoping exhibiting that uh, that you basically nailed the baseline motivations for me even starting the show in this first place, and even like wanting you to come on the show. Even when I'm seeing a live band, I don't care if it's subconscious or not. I always look at the drummer because seeing someone who looks like they're having fun is it, it's a really big thing for me. I'll walk away if I'm watching a band and the drummer looks miserable. I like to see someone who's having a good time and looks like they mean what they're playing. Obviously, they should be solid players. You know, nailing their fills without losing steam. 
not losing impact when playing at faster tempos. And if it's a slower music, you know, making sure they're playing in the pocket and making the music feel good. But I have an immense respect for what you do, the instrument you play. So I'm, I'm hoping I'm exhibiting that. <laughs> you said Joe Dukes and I was like, oh! <laughs> No worries, man. You, but you did like throughout this interview, you've uh, hinted that you wrote a book fairly young, but a, a, a lot of time has passed, and you still have a lot of career left in you, musically speaking, to finish. You know, will a will a second book come out, or you know, maybe if it does, will you approach it differently? Because I got to say, I've read a lot of uh, what do you call them, like memoirs or or books about the industry, and I always say that I wish books could make eye contact, so I know that they're lying or not. Some of it seems bullshit, but you're one of the the few that really kept it honest. I think I'm gonna have to. I always said that what that book was meant for what it was meant for, and I think it had to come out then because if I didn't write the book, I would have never learned to play drums. I probably would have just faded away and just done something else with my life because I, I was so just embittered by my experiences in hip hop towards the end and not owning my experiences. And I think the only way, I, the only catharsis for that was to write it. I, I couldn't get past it. It was my therapy. I couldn't get past it until I wrote it, you know, just or, or since I wrote it in 2010, 2011. So between 2012 and now, I've had at least six or seven more chapters worth of music experiences that would have been great. But, you know, it's like, okay, I think it was Henry Rollins. He has different books on, on different parts of his career. And you know, it also, you know, it, it gives me something to look forward to. You know, there can be a sequel or maybe it would be a, a, a documentary or a short film. Like, but I, I know next time to wait a little longer, you know, and or wait till I'm at a total creative slump. I'm talking about four or five years with nothing like I did before. Like I had to write that book because I had nothing left. But even my story of changing past, a lot of Gen Xers are relating to it. You know, because they're just tapped out. They're tired of whatever they're doing and they're burnt out. But it's not cool to say, yo, I'm burnt out. You'd be surprised how many people just keep stuff up because it's like what you have to do. You think that's what you have to do, you know? And it's like music careers are not like restaurants. Like a restaurant, if you got a hit hamburger, <laughs> don't fuck with the recipe. You know, like 50 years they've been coming for that burger, don't change the bun. Don't change the cheese. Don't put the onions on. Don't fuck with the tomatoes. <laughs> Stick to the script. I think a lot of times the business side of music makes us think that you kind of feel like you have to do that with your music. Like you have to stick to the script and hit them with the old one too. Like that's kind of what we're told. Life just ain't like that. You know, life changes your music and it changes you as a person. So my approach is not a restaurant. You can't have it your way. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do, but I know well and good that I could alienate everyone. And once you accept that and know that there's financial and professional consequences and you can get over that, then that's when you've reached artistry. And you think about Miles, bitches brew and on the corner. And when he was doing all, basically giving birth to all the fusion stuff, the critics hated him. They wanted my funny Valentine. He was like, I'm done with that shit. He wouldn't even play it at shows, you know? And I look at, you know, De La Soul doing me, myself and I 30 years later. And they always preface that song. We hate this record, but you're the fans. We love you. I know you love it. We're going to do it. And I give them a lot of credit. Cause that wouldn't be me. If I was still rapping, I'd only be doing a new album. So everybody who came for the, for the, for the hits, they'd be shit out of luck. And I, I know that about myself. So that's why I was like, I got to get away from that. 
you know. So, so what do you make of like you know this this Nas record is coming out has production from uh, RZA, Pharrell, Swiss Beats, Pete Rock, Kanye, and yet the track he chooses is you know the, the Algero rap scat attack which you know for those that don't know is Nas rapping over this sample scatting over like from a 1950s Brubeck piano jazz standard everybody's not gonna get you but keep going I'll be cruising 40,000 feet like I'm a Boeing and the response isn't favorable and it makes me wonder like combining jazz and rap it's elementary at this point tribe sampling Jimmy McGriff it worked it's a classic put a stamp on it but why didn't why isn't this working I honestly because I mean you know I've actually had sessions with, with Nas I had one session I should say because uh, he was looking for up-tempo breakbeat stuff and you know this was five years ago maybe four years ago and I played him with Lars Professor and you know I got in a session and played him some stuff and he was feeling it and he picked something then he played me some stuff he was working on and it was freaking unbelievable and it wasn't just typical boom bap like we're gonna take Illmatic and try to redo it like it was it was like some groundbreaking shit like the music was really different and it was moving and it was great and that never came out either to my knowledge to observe it not absorb it so I don't absorb it melody I think, you know, but but someone with Nas's cachet and he's financially seems to be all right. I think these are just his artistic decisions. I don't, I haven't seen anybody say, you know what, maybe he likes that shit. Because he, his dad was old Dara, jazz trumpet. He has jazz pedigree in, in his stuff. And they, it's like me doing funk, right? People are like, yo... He was in a fur coat, pimp talk, rapping, Captain Backslap, and now he's playing drums with a rock band or with a funk band or, you know, behind a sweet soul singer playing ballads, and he's got mallets in his hand playing on the toms. Like, people could say that shit about me, and they don't realize that's just what I want to do. It's not like I'm doing this because I'm trying to appeal to something or because the rent is due, or I think he wanted to do it. And, and when you look at it that way, it's like, okay— he, people think he's gone off the deep end, but I, no one's ever, no, all the criticism I saw, nobody said maybe he wants to do it and we're not feeling it, but he's feeling it. Like nobody's stopped to think this, that maybe he wants to do that shit. But De La Soul didn't like one of their albums and they, they recorded it. They mastered it. They released it. Is it just like a hindsight is 2020 thing? You mean with De La Soul? Well, I mean, you're not going to release anything in the do rights that you don't like to appease your audience. No, not at all. You know, but, but it's like, I sat with him in the session. So he'll, you know, he talked about like the nineties nostalgia and people, the ghost of Omatic is hard to ignore. And it's always going to be there. And it's probably best that you ignore it because you're never going to top that because you have all this shit. And then nostalgia is a motherfucker. Cause it's not only the music you're up against their memories. You can't beat that. <laughs> like somebody who is high school, in the back of their friend's car listening to an album smoking weed got the chicks cutting class go to the whiz pick up the album those are the best times of their life so the music's the soundtrack to that so even if you came back and made an album that was technically as good as that now if they're married to a nagging wife 
got two badass kids, fucked up job, mortgage is late, child support payment. You know, your life is all fucking, your cholesterol is all high, shit is all fucked up, you're all washed up shit. Like, you're not going to have the memories. So it's kind of like, I think nostalgia makes, is it, like the, the listener's nostalgia, they want you to take them back to that time when really all they have to do is pop in an album from that time. Because even if you make something reminiscent of that, it's not going to feel the same. They might say that's dope, but they're not, it's not going to feel the same being totally subjective. Has he had some questionable beat selection or made some questionable artistic decisions in my opinion? Yeah, of course, (laughs) you know, but I think also, you know, just me being an artist, I know that if I was under the ghost of one particular record, I would just be looking for anything to find something new. You know what I'm saying? Like I'd be trying to find a rebirth and I'd be experimenting my ass off. That's just artist to artist. Like the, your most artists I know their worst nightmare is, is living in the past and being stuck. Like that's the absolute worst possible thing. And you can love and respect your past and revere it and be proud. I'm proud of all my work, but you ain't going to see no TBTs for albums I made 20 years ago because I have no interest in going back there. They're all available on Discogs or Spotify or eBay and pick them up. I'm happy it impacted you positively. You know, people hit me up with questions. I answer them. We talk about it. It's great. And I'm flattered. But I ain't going to go back out there and do no fucking tours. I'm, I'm not going to be haunted by the ghost of anything I've already done. I'm constantly thinking forward. And that's what most artists do. And I think he's just doing that. And he's having a hard time being on the same page as what his core fans are looking for. You got sound check at six coming out. We, we don't have to TBT it anymore. The Do-Right started as a studio outfit. We... Our whole thing, it was a side back burner project for both of us. And then, you know, I was in a couple of music situations that fell apart. I had this huge epiphany at South by Southwest 2016 where I basically exploded internally and blew up my entire life because I had gone through so much in early 26. My grandmother passed, you know, I had a breakup, I had all kinds of stuff happen. And I was in a group situation. It wasn't working out. I did South by Southwest. I had the rhyme. I hated it. I was embarrassed. And I was forced to blow up everything and start from zero. So do rights, we just we just did it. We just made an album because I needed to channel that energy into something creative. And we made the album not thinking, hey, there's two of us. How the fuck are we going to pull this off live? I play keys and drums. Pablo plays bass and guitar. We both dabble in a little of other things. How, how are we going to do this? And we just kept making records because it's so easy for us to just compose music. And then, you know, ultimately it was like, well, the next step is to take it on stage. <laughs> like this. Yeah. It's right here. This takes me way back, man. This, this reminds me of my childhood, man. When cold winter morning around 1987 about 10 years old, staying over my grandparents' house. Woke up on a Sunday morning, I was hungry, man. Wanted some breakfast, so I made myself a bowl of oatmeal. But then I ran to this prop. See, I had this bowl of oatmeal, I ain't had nothing to put in it, man. We ain't had no brown sugar, no raisins, cranberries, walnuts, blueberries, apples, cinnamon, nothing, man. 
whole oatmeal. Grandparents hadn't been shopping, man, so I went to the refrigerator looking for something to put on this bowl of oatmeal, man. Got Worcester sauce, no, nah, hot sauce, uh, ketchup. Man. Whoa, what's this? What's this? My grandmother made a pot of neck bones that I located at the back of the refrigerator. So me being 10 years old and smart, I decided to take the neck bones, chop them up real fine, put it in my oatmeal and eat it. Most disgusting thing I ever ate in my life, but that ain't the point. Valuable lesson was learned on that day. Sometimes in life you gotta make do with what you got. And when you find yourself in that position, I want you to say, neck bones! <laughs> and we basically went deep in the woodshed and put a show together over the winter. We had our first gig at Symphony Space in New York City, which is pretty prestigious, on Valentine's Day. And we had a great time. We had a great response for our first show. It went over really well. We were all received. And, you know, we put all this work into the show. And obviously, we're trying to get more gigs. And we got some gigs coming up. And we were like, man, let's just do a real intimate show and just run our show and put the mics on and run it down. set everything up and we just recorded the show real small intimate show you know we, we mixed it put it together and it's like a live album a lot of drummers don't know how to play well in the studio because they're used to playing in a nightclub I know how to get great sound in the studio you know playing quietly watching your dynamics and then when I made the transition to playing live nobody could hear me <laughs> because I would play quiet so it was like it's the opposite thing but there's no right or wrong way to do it you know putting the whole process out there you know the good and the bad we're not perfect but you know we're working on it you know so well there you go sound check at six release is September correct yeah but the album will be on vinyl uh, Redef Records and then we do you know all the streaming and stuff that comes out we're looking at September 13th we're, you know how it is pressing vinyl like you never know if you're going to be on time but it's a September release for the whole album and I think people will dig it we're putting new and, and having other musicians play stuff that we play they put their personality into it so the personality of Bruce Martin and Bill Harvey Bruce's you know Latin percussion and keyboards and, and Bill's bass they bring their own idiosyncrasies and funk things to it and it gets, and they play it different than we played it in the studio and that just makes it more exciting and more funky you know so um, you know we're looking forward to that and doing more shows and to me it's just about learning I'm, I'm still a sponge and I'm not a master and um, I'm, I'm looking to just learn and that's kind of like being a kid again so so that's you know that's what I look forward to every day getting out of bed you know boom well Jay uh, I don't want to get mushy on you man but you are my you're my Steve Arrington you're my Greg Webster you're my Joe Duke so I, I use this platform to learn about life wisdom worth ethics and in my own personal way you know so I'm very grateful for your time the wisdom you've shared with me and my audience and the proverbial door is always wide open for you man I appreciate it thank you 